0: Father in heaven, we just acknowledge this morning that we need to be taught, that we need to be taught by you. We need your spirit to form our thinking, to change our minds, to think like you, God, to think the way that you think. And so Father, we submit ourselves, we surrender ourselves under your word this morning and we say, God, speak, give us hearts to listen, give us ears to listen, open the eyes of our hearts. I pray that, God, we would not have that unbelieving spirit that we see come up throughout the scriptures. Or that we would hear and receive and grasp what you have for us, Lord. It's all about you, Jesus. We love you. In your name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever noticed that it's oftentimes the easiest things in life to conceive that are the hardest things to grasp? The easiest things to conceive of are the hardest things to really take hold of. Maybe put another way, the easiest truths to conceptualize are the hardest truths to actualize. I'll give you an example. Um, There's this very, very basic truth that many of us know. Uh, When we want to lose weight, what is it? Eat less Food, right? How hard is that to understand, right? It's very easy. Exercise more, eat less food. I've known that for a very long time, very easy to understand. Have I grasped that? Sometimes. Other times, not so much, right? Or at one time, I had someone explain to me this thing called compound interest. And they said, Sam, you know, you're a young man. If you start putting money away a little bit, a little bit at a time, into some kind of a, a 401k or something, this, it'll build exponentially. By the time you're like 60s, uh, you'll, you'll have this map, but you have to start now. And I'm like, yeah, that makes total sense. Totally get that. Have I done it? No. <laughs> I have not done it. Uh, I've taken money out of a 401k before. Yes, right? Bad idea. These, these, these simplest, the simplest, simplest concepts to conceive of are the hardest concepts to take hold of, the hardest concepts to grasp oftentimes. And it's very true, and how many of you guys know this? It's very true that the most important and obvious lessons are also the lessons that take us the longest to learn. We know right, as fathers, for instance, like we know that we're supposed to be spending more time with our kids than we are on our phones or we are at work or we are on, our, are on hobbies. But yet it takes us sometimes until our kids are grown and moved out and, and out of our home to realize what we've missed. Right? Like it's sometimes it's the most obvious, the most simple, the most important points that take us so long to learn and to learn them over and over and over and over again. Jesus is a teacher. And I say that in the present tense because it's still true. Jesus was a teacher, and Jesus is a teacher. If you are a Christian, that is you saying, I've submitted myself under the teachings of Jesus. He's my rabbi. He's shaping me. He's forming me. He's he's making me think a certain way. And so when we read Jesus and his interactions with the disciple, we have to remember that he is a teacher. He's always teaching lessons. He has a lesson for us this morning. He has a lesson for us in our text. And the lesson this morning is a lesson that he has been trying to teach the disciples over and over and over again. And it seems like no matter how many times he teaches them, they still forget. And I think it's not a matter of, of, I don't think it's that they haven't conceived of it, it's they haven't grasped it. They haven't grabbed hold of it. Now this lesson that we're going to look at today, this, this truth that Jesus is trying to communicate, it is so evasive for them and for us. We share with the disciples in that. It's an evasive truth. And if you grasp this truth, now listen, if you grasp this truth that we're going to look at this morning, it will change your life. But listen, there's a difference between conceiving of this truth, which is to say, I present it to you, and you nod your heads and say yes, and then you go out of here and never actually grasp it. That will not change your life. In fact, that will turn you into a very good professional churchgoer that's really good at hearing sermons. And a lot of Christians are really good at hearing sermons, you know? It's, it's, like, it's like become the, the level of sanctification in America. Like, I listen to sermons, so I'm... Mature. No. It's grasping. It's taking hold of it. So what is this lesson that Jesus is trying to teach us and trying to teach his disciples here? This morning we're going to look at a couple of stories that you're probably very familiar with if you've spent any time in church. If you grew up in church, you've probably seen illustrations of these stories. It's really one of, two of actually the most beloved stories that we have of Jesus' life. The first is the feeding of the 5,000. We're going to look at that this morning. And you can picture it in your mind's eye. Green grass, it's a spring day. And Galilee overseeing the, the sea, which is really a beautiful lake of Galilee. And Jesus is everyone sitting down and they're sharing a meal together. No, we didn't plan that with the potluck. It just kind of worked out that way, although I think it'd be really funny if we didn't have enough food, um, just ironically. We're going to look at that story, and then we're going to look at this, this crazy story where Jesus is walking on the water, and and the disciples are kind of caught off guard by that. These are two very familiar stories, and what I want to invite you to do this morning is I want you to, to switch off the part of your brain that goes, yeah, I already get that. You yeah, already know that. I could tune out. Okay, let's let's take some fresh... Let's let's get some fresh eyes and take a, a fresh look and really ask the question, what is the lesson that Jesus is trying to teach in this story? Let's just dive right in. Verse 30 of Mark chapter 6. It says this, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, you guys might remember a couple of weeks ago, Jesus sent out his boys. He sent out his disciples, the 12. He marked them as apostles, and then he sent them uh, to go do what he had been doing, which was to preach the kingdom and to heal the sick, to cast out demons. He sends them with this power, and they go out, and what do you know? The power comes. It's this crazy thing. And so they've been out kind of on this short-term missionary journey and they finally make their way back now to Jesus and they're sort of checking back in with him, giving him an update on what has been happening. And they're exhausted Now, Galilee is not a huge place, and everybody really kind of knew each other there, and everybody kind of had an idea of what was going on. So there's really not a lot of escape for these guys. They can't go back to their motel rooms. Um, Really, people are coming, and they're going, and they're, they're always looking for the next miracle, looking for the next healing, looking for the next teaching. And the disciples are exhausted. They're fatigued. And not only are they exhausted, fatigued, they've been really apart from Jesus for some time now, doing ministry on their own. And so Jesus, this compassionate, good rabbi, this this, this kind Jesus sees and recognizes their need and he says, guys, we gotta hop in the boat and we gotta go take a little break. And Jesus is teaching these guys rest. He teaches us work, he also teaches us rest, right? He's teaching them rest and he is prioritizing rest. He's prioritizing their limitations because they're human. So Jesus says, let's get in the boat and let's go across to the other side which is a little bit less populated. Now, it's about eight miles from where they started to the other, or pardon me, it's about four miles from where they started to the other side where they were headed. If you were to walk around the lake, it would have been about eight miles. So it's a shortcut to get in the boat and go across. And remember, these guys are exhausted, they're fatigued, they're tired, they're headed off for their little vacation, for a little bit of rest. Verse 33, now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So this is what's happening. As these guys are getting in the boat, a few people happen to glance over and say, hey, they're leaving. Let's tell everybody, and let's get where they're going before they get there. So they go the eight miles. Somehow, before they manage to get the four miles, they manage to get their eight miles around the Sea of the Galilee. And you can just imagine the disciples who are exhausted and ready for a break. You can imagine as they're pulling in to the shore, they look out and they see thousands of people waiting to receive them. How would you be feeling? I would be feeling frustrated. Like, seriously? Can we just get a break? You guys, you guys always want something. I'm just tired. I just want rest. Any of you guys have kids? Right? Like, it's, it's like, it's 9 o'clock. I'm in bed. But you want water? Why do you want water? You do not want water two hours ago, right? You know, why do you need water now? It's, it's like that. It's like these guys are tired. They just want to rest, and everybody's coming after them all the time. And you would expect that Jesus would be frustrated as well. Now, I just need to make a note here. This is not the feeding of the 5,000. The reason we call it the feeding of the 5,000 is because Mark says that they fed 5,000 men. But Mar- uh, Matthew's account lets us know that that was just the men, which means there was probably upwards of 20,000, reservedly, probably 15,000. you got 5,000 men, probably 5,000 women, and probably five to 10,000 children. Guys, that's massive. That's half of Grant's pass. This is a huge, huge crowd imagine how frustrated you would be when you get off the boat but notice what Jesus notice what Jesus does when he went ashore he saw a great crowd and he had what compassion on them not frustration not intolerance not anger not consternation no he has compassion on them because why because they were like sheep without a shepherd And he began to teach them many things. What happens when a sheep doesn't have a shepherd? What happens? They die. They die. They have to have a shepherd. And so Jesus looks at this crowd and he sees with compassionate eyes, he sees a group of people that have not been led. He sees a group of people that need a leader, that need to be cared for. Just a side note here, but did you know God is a person? That seems obvious, maybe, but sometimes we think of God as a force or some kind of a a robot or something. He doesn't have feelings. He's God, right? He's above that. You know why you have feelings? Because God has feelings. You know why you're a person? Because God's a person. He made you a person because he's a person. And so Jesus here, when he feels compassion, he's not just showing his humanity. He's also showing his divinity. God feels. Did you know God feels what you feel? You know, when you're struggling, when you're sad, when you're having a hard time, God feels that. Sometimes we just need to hear that. Not only does he care, he feels. So Jesus feels compassion uh, on them. And, and what does he do? He begins to what? Teach. Because that's what they need. What they really need is truth. They need the truth. He begins to teach. In 35, and when it, grows, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. And the hour is now late. So Jesus has preached long. It's been a long day. And 36, they, sit, they suggest to Jesus, or they command Jesus, depending on how you read it, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Okay, here's the deal. They're out in the middle of nowhere um, by design. That's because they were trying to get away from humans. And all these humans follow them. and there's no food. And guess what? These guys didn't pack a lunch. Why? Because they didn't know Jesus was going here. They just left. They just went in a hurry. They didn't really bring any food, and, and they're just they're, they're, they're hungry. But let's be honest, okay? Who's really hungry here? The disciples are hungry, right? The disciples was like, Jesus, the crowd is, they hungereth, right? If we were at King, King James Bible, they hungereth. Um, they hath hunger. Uh, but in reality, like, let's be honest. Like, it, I do this, too, in my house sometimes. I'm like, you know, babe, like, there's no, there's no food in the fridge, and the kids... They just really need tacos. Don't you think the kids need tacos? Don't you think I should go get some for the kids? You know, This is kind of what's going on. I think the disciples are like, we're hungry. Jesus, we've heard these sermons before. We came over here to rest, and now you're preaching all day long. Can we just get a break? Can we send these guys away into town? We can do this tomorrow, right? So they they, they take things into their own hands. Now, it's been a long day. The disciples are not feasting on the words of Jesus. What are they doing? They're fidgeting with dinner plans. And this is what we do on Sunday mornings at 11.30, right? You're you're like, yeah, sermon was good for 20 minutes, but now I'm thinking about lunch. Like, I wonder what's coming up, right? They're not feasting on the words of God. They're not feasting on the teachings of Jesus. They're, They're fidgeting with how to manipulate the situation to where they can go to bed and get some dinner. And I don't blame them, honestly. I get it. Notice how Jesus answers them. He says... Listen, this is weird. Listen, he says, you give them something to eat. What? What? It's like my daughter being like, hey, can I, go to the, can I go to the Dollar Tree? I have a dollar. I'm like, yeah, you drive us. What? Yeah, you drive us. And, of course, she'd be like, Daddy, you're kidding. You're silly. And I'd be like, no, no, seriously, you drive us. I mean, what does he talk? Why is he telling them to do this? Now, either there's, there's a couple ways you could look at this. Either, either Jesus is literally telling them to do the miraculous which is possible, and after all, he just sent them out with power, right? It could be that. Or maybe Jesus just knows that they can't do it, and he wants to drive that home, that they need him to do it. They think he means literally. They think he means monetarily. So they go, "Uh, hey, how much money do we have? Yeah, 30 grand. Okay. Jesus, you want us to go spend our whole 30 grand on food for these 20,000 people? Where am I getting that 30 grand? Well, they say, do you want us to go spend 200 denarii? Uh, one denarii was one day's wages for a Roman. Okay, so this is just about, uh, if median income in the U.S. is about 45000 you can imagine it's about thirty to $40,000. This is probably everything that they've had saved. Um, I should have shaved today. My beard is like rubbing on my microphone. So if you hear that crackling, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, anyways, this is like a, a whole year's worth of wages. And they're like, Jesus, you want us to spend all that just to feed these guys for one meal? Really? Is that really what you want? And notice, 38, he said to them, Well, how many loaves do you have? In other words, what do you guys got to work with? And they're like, Well, we don't know. He said, Go see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. So Jesus sends these guys out into the crowd, and, and they you can kind of just imagine they're hauling. Hey, anybody got any food? Anybody got any food? Anybody? Nobody. 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 Okay. Uh, and then this one little kid, according to the synoptic gospels, one little kid goes, "Yeah, I got a I got a little bit of a, a lunch here, like a lunchable." And 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 uh, and and I'm not kidding with a lunchable because it's it's two loaves and, and three no three loaves. What is it? Bible students. Five and two fish. Okay, five loaves and two fish. And you're thinking these big loaves of bread, right? Well, don't think that. Think mini muffins, okay? Mini muffins. These were these little tiny, these little tiny flat pieces of bread um, that you would eat probably five to... Anyone ever eat one mini muffin? No, you don't eat one mini muffin. And if you're saying you do, you're lying, okay? You eat 10 mini muffins, and then you try to tell yourself, that's probably about one muffin, right? (laughs) especially if it's a big one, you know? I mean, like, that's probably one muffin. No, it's not one muffin, and you know it, okay? So anyways, this, these five tiny little cakes and these, these, these two little fish, and these aren't full fish. These are little pickled fish that you would eat, bones and all, and they just kind of go on top of basically like the cracker. This is, this is nothing. This is super minimal, and that's the point, okay? That's the point. Now, why does Jesus want to take something and multiply it? Why doesn't he just create food out of thin air? Certainly he could. You theologians know the, the, the theological term is ex nihilo. God created the universe from nothing. And Jesus is God, so Jesus certainly could have created ex nihilo. He could have created all of this food from nothing. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't pull like a Harry Potter, you know, where all of a sudden there's food. Not that we watch that movie because it's of it's, it's, uh, the devil. i um, just kidding. I love those movies. Um, you know, not like that. Why does he do that? Why does he take something and turn it into something else? And I would suggest to you because it typifies the ministry of Jesus. Jesus didn't come to, to, to start over. He came to redeem. He came to take something that was broken, a.k.a. you and I, and to turn it into something that is whole. Jesus loves to take what's laying around and use it to build something with. He loves to take what is wholly inadequate yet available. And that's just a great side note, by the way. Like, God can take anything and use it for what he wants to use it for. He gets the glory in it. Verse 39, then he commanded them to all to sit in groups on the green grass. That's how we know it's springtime. Uh, and Jesus was very organized, by the way. Some people think that it's unspiritual to be organized. It's not true. Um, it's actually very spiritual. Jesus said, break into groups. Why? Because it's practical. Break them into groups. Uh, have them sit down um, by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. Uh, Side note, he didn't bless the food. You don't actually do that. You bless the Lord for the food, right? Okay, so we don't like, Lord, bless this food to our bodies. I don't know what that, I don't know. It's bless you, Lord. He he gave a blessing to the Lord for providing the food. That's what Jesus did. Uh, He divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. They were satisfied. Note that word. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. So there's 12 doggy bags for the 12 disciples. Um, so they, they, they get sent away full and they even have extra. These disciples that were so worried about getting dinner, uh, they're, they're more than abundantly cared for. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000. Now, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? What's the point here. What's the lesson here? Is this just kind of a, a, a nice, cute little story about the fact that Jesus is going to make sure you have dinner on your table? Is that the point? Uh, that's usually how this is kind of presented. First of all, let me just make a point that this has great significance. This scene has great significance. There is only two miracles in the entire New Testament that are recorded by every gospel writer. One of them is the resurrection, because it's super important. And the other one is this. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? All four gospel writers took space on their scroll to make sure that this event was recorded. Why is it so important? What's the significance of this? Why is it such a big deal? There's many things that gospels left out. Many things, but this is one that all four... There is a lesson here. It's not just a cute story about a church potluck. It's not just a cute story about the provision of Christ. There's something massive happening. There's something so significant, in fact, that there's layers to it. And we're going to look at three layers. Okay, the first we're going to be sort of short, and the third one's the main point. Okay, this, this, this event has three layers to it. When you're a good Bible student, you approach the Scripture and you, 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 take, you take it in context with the entirety of Scripture. There's some really significant things happening here. So here's the first lesson that's to be learned from this. The first lesson, number one, if you're taking notes, is the typological lesson. You know what a typology is? Something is a type of something else, meaning it's foreshadowing. It's it's alluding to something that's going to come and fulfill it ultimately. Okay, uh, maybe an example of that would be like a, an engagement ring is a sort of a type of a wedding ring. It's 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 for it's foreshadowing. It's it's giving an example of something that's going to come. So the typological lesson is this: is that the true shepherd has arrived. There's a biblical theme that you need to be aware of all throughout the Old Testament. It's called the shepherd motif, and the idea is this: is that God. Uh, views his people, Israel, in the Old Testament, as his sheep. They're his sheep, and he is their shepherd. And because he's their shepherd, he raises up these under-shepherds to take care of Israel. David was one of them. Um, the, the different kings that we read about in Kings and Chronicles were, were one of them. Moses was one of them. These are sort of under-shepherds um, under God, who was the ultimate shepherd of Israel. And all throughout the Old Testament, these shepherds failed miserably. They just failed flat out. And so throughout the scriptures, we see God's promise is this, that he will send the true shepherd. In fact, why don't you turn with me really quick to Ezekiel 34. We're going to turn around a lot this morning, so I hope you're ready for that. Ezekiel 34 verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you rule them. Now skip down to verse 11. The Lord gets to the point here. He says, for thus, listen, for thus says the Lord God, behold, who? I, myself. In fact, it says it twice. It's emphatic. Behold, I, I, myself. Who's I? Yahweh. I, myself, will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. And as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered. Isn't that incredible? God is saying, and he says this all throughout the Old Testament, and this is not the only place. He says, the shepherds of Israel have gone apostate. They've they've, they've taken advantage of the sheep. And so he says, I myself will come to Israel and I will be their shepherd. And it runs all throughout the scriptures. So why is that so significant? It's so significant because here we see Jesus shows up in front of this crowd, and what does it say? In verse 34 of our text, what does it say? He says, he looked at them, and he had compassion on them, because they were sheep without a shepherd. See, Jesus was the fulfillment of this Old Testament anticipation, that God himself would come to shepherd his people. Isaiah 40, you don't need to turn there. Isaiah 40 verse 10 says, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. What's Jesus doing in this, in this passage? He's feeding them. He just, he just fed 20,000 people. He's fulfilling scripture. He will carry the lambs in his arms and holding them close to his heart. Now this is why, and follow me here, this is why John's gospel tells us that the next day, actually it wasn't the next day, the same day after Jesus feeds these 20,000, he has to leave. Because he knew that they were going to come and make him king. Why were they going to make him king? Because they knew this significance. They knew that Jesus had just fulfilled the Old Testament anticipation for the shepherd to come and to feed his people. So Jesus has to leave. Isn't that interesting? That's why Jesus said specifically, uh, explicitly in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. All of the Old Testament anticipation, all of the types of shepherding in the Old Testament is fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. Now, as important as that is and as theologically um, important as that is, that's not the main point, though, of the feeding of the 5,000. It's not the main point. It's an important point, but it's not the main point. Here's another reason. We've talked about the typological lesson. There's a symbolic lesson. The symbolic lesson, if you start looking at this, you start to notice certain things that should remind you of other things, okay? Okay? Where are we in the feeding of the five thousand? We're in the wilderness, desert, desert place. What's the problem? You got a bunch of hungry people. Why are they hungry? Because they left in a hurry. Sound like anything familiar? What happens? This uh, this leader, this figure, causes bread to come and to satisfy the crowd. Sound familiar? It sounds like the Israelites in the wilderness. There's a connection. There's a correlation here. There's provision. The number, 12 baskets, 12 disciples, what's up with that? The 12 disciples are supposed to mirror the 12 tribes of Israel. There's something significant happening here. Even the organization um, in verse 40 of the the divisions of of 50 and 100 mirrors the divisions in the organization of Israel. Here's the point, I'll just just say it. Jesus is drawing attention to this moment because that moment in in the wilderness was when God birthed the nation Israel. And in this moment, now Jesus is birthing a new Israel. Who is the new Israel? It's Jesus. Jesus is the new Israel. So there's all this theological significance. And that's all interesting. And we could dive more into that. But we don't have time this morning. Okay? These are two very significant theological points. But that's still not the main point. It's still not the big picture. Listen, the main thing's the plain thing, and the plain thing's the main thing. And if you don't know all of those things, and you don't know numerology, and you don't know typology, and you don't you, there's still a point here. There's a lesson here that Jesus is getting at with these guys, and we need to understand what it is. So let's talk about the most important lesson in the feeding of the 5,000. And we're going to do a little bit of, of digging here to figure out what it is. Interesting to note. There's three places where Jesus himself brings up the feeding of the 5,000 in the subsequent days. It's the same day, and the next day, and a few months later. He brings it up himself. And the way that he brings it up gives us clues into what the lesson was supposed to be in the feeding of the 5,000. So let's, let's just look at them really quick. The first one is actually the same exact day. So it's here in Mark chapter 6, verse 45. So after Jesus feeds the 5,000, he says immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. So Jesus tells the disciples, hey, get in the boat, go by yourself, back to the other side. Why is he doing that? Because the crowds are going to come make him king. So he's going to go out and, and sort of hide out in the mountains for a little bit. He sends them across the lake. 46, after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. So Jesus is on the shore, it's nighttime, it's evening time, and he he comes down and he's sort of peeking over the the, the sea to see where his guys are at. And they're rowing, they're struggling because the wind is going the wrong direction. They're trying to get across and they can't because the headwind is too strong. So about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, like you do, right? Just walking on the sea. And I love this little note, he meant to pass by them. His goal was to beat them to the shore. His goal wasn't to hop in the boat. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. It's dark. Okay? Well, we give the disciples a hard time, but let's get real. You see somebody walking on the, on the water in the middle of the night? Uh, you think it's a ghost. You, they cry out. For they said, uh, verse 50, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. Okay, the second Jesus' sandal hits the bottom of the boat, the wind is flat. Isn't that incredible? It's incredible. He gets in the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For now, here's where I want you to focus 52 For they did not understand about the loaves. Isn't that interesting? but their hearts were hardened. So Mark makes a special note here that whatever it is that that, that the the way that these guys responded to Jesus walking on the water and getting into the boat, um, the way they responded was wrong because they didn't understand the lesson of the feeding of the 5,000. There's a connection here. There's something about Jesus walking on the water and getting into the boat that's supposed to connect in their minds back to the feeding of the 5,000. Whatever the lesson is, they didn't learn it. They didn't learn it. Now, let's look at the second one, Mark chapter 8. Bear with me here, okay? Mark chapter 8. This will come together. This is the second time this comes up. Again, in a boat, Jesus just gets done getting razzed by the Pharisees, asking him uh, and demanding a sign of him. And uh, Mark 8, 14, now they had forgotten to bring what? Bread. Oops. Okay? We forgot to pack bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Now, the, the author here, Mark, is trying to connect your brain back to the feeding of the 5,000. Because in the feeding of the 5,000, what is it? There? There's a minimal amount of food. Okay? So this is supposed to connect your brain. In verse 15, he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What is leaven? It's like yeast Jesus is using it as an illustration here, saying, Hey, look out for this this mentality, the thinking of Herod, the thinking of the Pharisees. Don't let it permeate you. Don't let it take hold of you, right? In verse 16, they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. What are they talking about? It's like, like, no offense, Justice, you're in here. But it's like my six year old, you know, I'm trying to tell him something, and he's over there, like, playing with his Legos. Jesus is, like, giving them this really important thing, and they're like, Oh, man, we didn't bring any bread. We didn't bring Jesus is like, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He's like, yeah, we didn't bring any bread. What are you doing? The same stupid thing you were doing when the 5,000 were getting fed. Instead of sitting there listening to Jesus' teachings, you're over there trying to figure out how to, to manipulate everything, right? It's exactly the same thing here. They completely missed the point of the teaching. And they're so concerned, thinking they're in trouble for not bringing bread, because obviously that would be something Jesus would freak out about, right? And Jesus, in 17, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? What are you doing? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, you do not see. Having ears, you do not hear. And you do not remember. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000. Jesus brings their memory back to this. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And seven for the 4,000. You know, Jesus does it again later. We'll see. He feeds 4,000. How many baskets full of pieces did they take up? Seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And in other words, like, what do, guys, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? You've seen me raise a dead person. You've seen me meet, feed 20,000 people twice. I, I mean, I, what, what, do I gotta, what do I have to do to get you guys to, to, to see What I'm trying to get you to see. One last place, John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Now, this is the next day after Jesus feeds the 5,000. They track him down, okay? They had a great dinner. They're ready for a great breakfast. So they find Jesus the next day. In verse 25, John 6, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them. I love this. This is not Jesus had compassion on them like a sheep without shepherd. No, this is like Jesus is just going to straight up tell them what's up. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And otherwise, you guys, you only chase me down because you want breakfast. That's the reality. You want food. And then he says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father set his seal. Then they said to him, I love this, okay? Jesus said, yeah, what you need is the Son of Man. You need me. And they're like, okay, what do we do? Listen, to it. they say, what, what must we do to do the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him, whom he sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? Are you serious? This is the same crowd that he just fed like, that he multiplied loaves, and they came looking for breakfast, and he said, you're just here for the, the, the breakfast, and they were like, well, what sign do you offer us? I mean, you got to be kidding me. You, you, you can't make this stuff up. Jesus said to them, 32, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the, listen, true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Listen, guys. Jesus said to them, note it, I am the bread of life. What's the point? What's the point of the feeding of the 5,000? What's the lesson Jesus is trying to teach her? What's the thing he's trying to communicate to the crowd and to the disciples? What's the point for us? What are we supposed to get out of this? What's the reality? It's this. The point is this, and that is that Jesus is the point. The point is this, that Jesus is the point, and they can't get it. Because like I said in the introduction, it's the easiest things to conceive that are the hardest to grasp. And it's the most important truths that will have the most life change that we have the hardest time learning. The point is, is that Jesus is like, you're thinking about bread? I just made the bread. Come on. You're worried about the storm? I just made the storm stop. You're worried about the waves? I'm walking on the waves. You got a problem with water? I made it. The point is that Jesus is the point. You don't need to know everything. You need to know the one that knows everything. That's Jesus. You don't need to have everything. You need to have the one that has everything. That's Jesus. You just need him. You're worried about bread? He's like a vending machine. Good grief. Grief. I mean, you you worried about finding a book? Like, have you heard of the internet? Eternal amounts of information. Jesus is like, if you have with me, guys, if you have with me, if you have me with you, don't worry about the storm, and lunch is on me. He's sitting in the boat. They're freaking out because they didn't bring enough bread, and Jesus is like, hello. Remember what I did yesterday? You, you could ask me to do that again. It would be cool. Oh, well, no, he's just angry because we didn't bring enough bread. Good grief. And it's so ridiculous. We do the same stupid things. Don't we? I mean, God just does some crazy thing and just, show, I mean, how about the cross, right? God's eternal plan of salvation before the foundations of the earth. He called and elect you with all wisdom and knowledge. He abounded towards you with wisdom and love and saved you, predestined you, sealed you, regenerated you, has, is making a place for you in eternity. And then you wake up in the morning and you go, God, I just don't know if I can make it today. I just need to manipulate something, I just need to make something work. And Jesus is like, I make bread. I make bread. I'm not talking about him giving you everything you want, by the way. But I am talking about the fact that he is the bread. He is the thing you need. He is the one that can give you what you're looking for because he is the thing you're looking for. This isn't a cute story about Jesus giving you bread. This is a profound story about Jesus being bread. The point of the story isn't, yeah, Jesus is going to give me a nice, a nice healthy salary and everything I want. Like, no, no. The point is Jesus is the point if you get him you get everything. If you lose him, you get nothing. Jesus said it like this, seek first the kingdom of God for all these things will be added. Only if you get, I love you Chuck, only if you get the kingdom first, only if you get the kingdom first, you get everything. You get it backwards, you lose it. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The Israelites had the signs and they had the sandwiches and they died and perished in the wilderness because they missed God. And the irony of this and the reason that I brought up all of the the Israelites in the, the, the wilderness is because this is the same thing all over again. God is providing, God is showing signs and they still don't believe. So, so what? Let me give you two ways to completely miss Jesus and not even realize it in okay, case so you're like man I really just I want to miss the point in life. I want to miss the point. I just want to totally miss it. Let me tell you how to do that. You're welcome. Two ways to completely miss Jesus and not realize it. Number 1. Focus more on doing things for Jesus than being with Jesus. Focus more on doing things for Jesus than being with Jesus. The disciples and the crowds, they're very, very, very busy trying to get it right. They're so busy trying to get it right, they get it wrong. They're so busy trying to manipulate the situation. The disciples are so worried that Jesus is maybe an idiot, and maybe he forgot that it was 7 o'clock. Maybe he didn't realize that they're out there and everybody's hungry. Maybe he just wasn't thinking about it. And so they're going to work for Jesus. They're going, to, they're going to show Jesus, hey, we're on top of it. Hey, Jesus, we should send everybody into the city and, and so they can get some food, right? Because Jesus is going to love me if I just get it right and I help him out because he just needs my help. No. The disciples should have been sitting there enthralled with the teachings of Christ not even thinking about the time, and instead they're manipulating, trying to figure out how to do something for the Lord, all the while missing being with the Lord. most classic example I can think of this is Mary and Martha, right? you got Mary who's just enraptured with her Lord, the eternal source of of, of ultimate reality, the Logos, God's son, the creator of the universe, right in front of her. The the source of all joy and pleasure in the universe right in front of him. She's just totally absorbed, sitting at the feet of the rabbi. And then there's Martha, who's just really worried dinner's not going to be ready. Bless her heart, right? And what does Jesus say to Martha? He doesn't scold her. Martha, Martha, you're troubled about many things. You're stressed. You know what he's basically saying? He's saying, hey, just calm down. Calm down. Come in here and sit. Dinner's going to get done. Dinner's going to get done. The point is not that dinner doesn't matter, by the way. The point is the point of priority. The point is that we spend so much time as Christians thinking about doing things for the Lord that we often forget that being a Christian is about being with the Lord. First and foremost. And the, 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 the recipe to burn out as a Christian is to get too focused on what you're doing and not enough on being with him. It's very simple. John 17, 3, Jesus prayed this. He said, this is eternal life that we might know him. You know, you're going to spend eternity with God. You're not going to spend eternity just doing things for God. And maybe that sounds really boring to you, to be with the Lord. And if it does, it's probably because you haven't considered the fact that everything cool in this universe was made by God. (laughs) Everything exciting and interesting, provocative, I don't know if that's the right word. Everything, uh, everything that's enthralling, everything that's exciting, God made that. He's the source of all things. Philippians 3.8, Paul says, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. It's just him. I just want him. Let me ask you a couple pointed questions. Think about these. When you examine your salvation, in other words, when, you, when you're having a day where you're like, man, am I even saved? You ever have days like that? Like you're like, man, am I even a Christian? What is wrong with me? When you examine your salvation, which you should, by the way, do you look to your relationship with Him, or do you look to your effectiveness for Him? What do you reach for? What do you reach for? Do you reach for? Well, you know, I did wake up and read my Bible this morning, so and I did witness to that guy last week. You know, I I, so I've done so I'm good. Or do you reach for? I know the Lord. I sit with the Lord. The Lord knows me. We have a relationship. Don't forget that sobering reality that when people come before the Lord at the end of all things and they go, we did mighty works in your name. He says, I never what? Knew you. I never knew you. I want to know you. It's about sitting with him. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you just sat and acknowledged his presence? I want to encourage you guys. Now, this is probably the only time you'll ever hear me say, don't read your Bible. Every once in a while, I just want you to do this. And just sit and just consider the Lord. Consider his love. Consider his goodness. And ex- acknowledge, listen to me, acknowledge his presence. Acknowledge his Just imagine that. Just sit and just acknowledge that he's there with you. That he's pleased with you. That you can't do anything more for him. And just enjoy being in the reality that is the gospel in the presence of God. It's good to read your Bible. Read your Bible. But sometimes you just need to sit and be. You just need to sit and be. The first way to completely miss Jesus is to focus more on doing things for Jesus than being with Jesus. And the second way is this. Focus more on the gifts of Jesus than the glory of Jesus. Focus on the gifts. More on the gifts than the glory. Uh, my friend Rick Boya always says, did you marry God for your money? You know, did you? you, know, did, you marry, or did you marry God for his money? Pardon me. Did you marry God because of something that he gives you that you like? Or, or did you come to faith in Christ because you fell in love with Jesus. It's sad to say, but Christianity can often replace Christ. It does it all the time. And people go through these crises of faith because they've actually been saved not to Christ, they've been saved to Christianity. And that's not the Christ. And so you become very excited about this Christian thing christians these people accept me it's kind of cool we sing cool songs i like you know teachings are, are, are interesting and we have potlucks and well you know christianity is cool and the christian culture can be cool and in the west there's a lot of benefits to being a christian right and you get very excited about all those things all the while you're endeared to christianity not to christ and then guess what the veneer comes back and you realize that christianity is broken <laughs> that christians are broken the guy that you looked up to ends up cheating on his wife you know, the, the guy that was the, the great apologist that was on the stage teaching to thousands of people ends up being a pervert. Whatever, whatever it is. And, and all of a sudden, or your church splits or shatters or somebody was embezzling and, 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 and then the Christian culture just starts to feel gnarly to you. And also you have a what? A crisis of faith. Why do you have a crisis of faith? You were never saved to Christianity. You were saved to Christ. And what happens is we start to endear our hearts to Christianity and that is what God is doing rather than who God is. We start to be about his gifts and his blessings and the recip- uh, becoming recipients of what he does. We start to worship the things he gives rather than who he is. There's something we do on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. Oftentimes, we, we, uh, whoever's around, we volunteers, we sit and we, we pray. And I always say, hey, before you ask for something for the Lord, I want you to praise God for something he is. And there's a reason I say it like that. There's a difference between praising God for who he is and praising God for what he does. And both are important. But if you only ever praise God for what he gives, it endears your heart to the gift and not the giver. You need to praise God for who he is and for what he does. It's very important because at the end of the day, we are saved to Christ. There's a saying that goes, what you win them with, you keep them with. There's a saying that says, what you win them with, you win them too." if you are winning people to Christianity or to a cool experience or to a cool church or to cool programs or cool people or cool sayings or cool sermons, then their heart becomes endeared to that. We win people to Christ. I'm going to ask some hard questions. Do you like what Jesus does or do you like who Jesus is? Let me put a finer point on that. If you could have, and this, this is a question John Piper asked one time, it just wrecked me. If you could have everything you've ever wanted... For all eternity, but Jesus wouldn't be there, would you go? Everything you ever wanted. Your family be there, perfect health, super strong, super smart, everything you ever wanted, right? Jesus isn't there. Would you take it? If the answer to that is yes, I would spend a little time thinking about where your heart's at. Christ is the treasure. Jesus is why we want to go to heaven, to be with him. We want to We want his glory. We don't want his gifts. We, We appreciate his gifts. If all the benefits of serving Jesus were removed tomorrow, how much do you think you would still do just for him? There's a lot of benefits in doing things for Christ. When those benefits are removed, do we still do it? Have you fallen more in love with the idea of Jesus than the person of Jesus? You know, there's people out there that worship the idea of Jesus, this idea that they've made, a Jesus who's in their own image, but not the Jesus that we read in the scriptures. Just consider these things. The main point is this. The main point of the text is not to remind us that Jesus will give you daily bread. The point is to remind us that Jesus is your daily bread. And he does give daily bread, by the way. He's so kind. This is also an illustration of God's extreme common grace. that God feeds these people. These are unbelievers, you know? These 5,000, these 20,000, they're unbelievers. And God feeds them anyways. He's kind. But the point of the story is that he is the bread. He is the bread of life. He is the point. Our hearts so easily settle for daily bread, and we miss the eternal bread that is Christ. So I'll just encourage you this week. Can you just remind yourself of that when you get up in the morning? What you need is you need him. You just need him. He's the point. The easiest concepts to conceive are the hardest to grasp. And Jesus is going to continue to teach these guys over and over and over and over again until they get it that they, what they really need is Jesus. He's what they need. He's what they need. And that's the same lesson we need to learn. Amen? Let's stand together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much, God, that you do speak, that you do teach. Lord, I need this this week. I need, I need to simplify I just make Christianity so confusing. I clutter it with all my own thinking and all my own manipulating and my own fidgeting with things. At the end of the day, Lord, I need to sit with you this week. I need to go through things with you this week. I need to bring you into my work. I need to bring you into my thoughts. I need to acknowledge your presence. So God, I just pray that this very simple truth would sink down this week. i I pray for this church pray for these people, Lord, as they go into the world, a world that is uh, not their home, as they deal with hard things, as they deal with their own doubts and their own questions, as they deal with their own sin and their own flesh, as they come back to the gospel day after day, repenting of sin, walking after you, would I pray that they would always remember that it's just you they need, it's just you, would you manifest yourself to us this week, enlarge our hearts for you, our love for you, our affection for you. And God, as we interact now as a body and just enjoy a meal together, I pray we'd be able to encourage one another, Lord, and and just truly be a family this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.